How do we mass manufacture civilization? Well, it's not through building, you know, cities that are one-offs that are not modularly constructed, that are kind of organic. It's through figuring out how to build cities in chunks that are distinct, distinct modules like cells in a body. Now, that's what water decentralization means. This means you can just drop something in a neighborhood and say, here, here's your water source. Have at it, have fun. And that changes everything. Welcome to Liquid Assets, where we talk about the intersection of policy, management, and business, all as it looks at the world of water. I'm your host, Robbie, and today we have an awesome guest, Michael Stanley Gallistorfer, for you, or commonly known as MSG. So I'm MSG, I'm Dr. Michael Stanley Gallistorfer, and I'll leave you with this, and I'll start you with this too. Just remember that art is technology and beauty is power. And beauty is what you look at to know it's going to work. Michael, we were talking earlier before I hit the record button about the future of water and freedom. And you talked about kind of four, four main concepts that we were briefly chatting about. Let's go ahead and dive into those for the audience. And All right. Let's do it, Robbie. Thank you for having me on today. I really appreciate it. It's a real pleasure. And I'm looking forward to our conversation. And I hope all of, all of our audiences too. When it comes down to the future of water and freedom, what am I talking about? Okay. So I define freedom as you can't say yes if you can't say no. And right now, when it comes to water, you can't say no. You can't just go and get your own water these days because if you're taking it from, say, an urban waterway or a lake, it's polluted. And you can't exactly just make it on your own. There's some desalination occurring atmospheric water generation. So when it comes to this idea of the future of water and freedom, Here's the four concepts now. So three come as one. So there's decentralization, diversification, and democratization of water. And we'll get into that in a minute. So decentralization, diversification, and democratization of water. Think of off-grid water. Then there's this bigger idea, which ties into the concepts like regenerative economy. It ties into things like the blue economy, you know, an, an economy that revolves around the use of water as an economic medium. So water is an economic medium, a medium of commerce is not just shipping. It's not just aquaculture. It's not just, you know, water for drinking or for irrigation. It's this idea that water is really a primordial soup and we can use that soup to support our economy. Why is that? So we'll start with that first. It seems like a pretty natural transition there. So why water is an economic medium? Well, if you could figure out how to produce all of the biomaterials we need to replace, you know, mined materials, you know, petrochem, anything like that, using water, then that kind of cuts the cord to the mining economy, you know, an extractive economy. And that allows us to move more towards an economy that has what my pal Nicola would say would be like a regenerative coefficient. So we got an ocean, we're growing a bunch of algae for fuel or for, you know, polymers or whatever. We know that each year under typical conditions will yield X gigatons of algae goo, which we can then refine. So why interesting point there, you know, the whole refining industry can still have jobs. Interesting point there is why are we doing that yet? It's because we don't have the means to really work with our oceans and our big lakes yet. We just kind of view them as this place where we go to move stuff around cheaply on big ships. So I'll leave it there. Water is an economic medium. You do a lot with it. It can change the whole world. Different kind of economy. 
Two, let's get to this idea of democratization in water. That's diversification and decentralization. Now, okay, right now, either you're getting water from the ground, you're getting it from some sort of natural source, a lake or a river, or you're getting it through desale. And there's a few other minor players in there. There's a few emerging areas too, which we can talk about later. That means that you aren't free as an individual to go wherever you want, because unless you're going to carry your water in or make your own water, you don't have a choice. So what that does is at a fundamental level, it ties us into one type of civilization, you know, a civilization that needs to be near water. That's limiting us. We can't say no to water. So the future, if I was going to look at it from a very high level perspective, like a chief technology officer's perspective, I would say, first, let's look at where the holes are in the system. You know, if we look at the world and say, where don't we get water? Where is water too expensive for a company as we know a company and business as we know a business to deliver water? That area is not economically productive. It's not part of the economy. The people who are there are spending so much time and energy just to survive that it's limiting economic development. You know, it's limiting complexity in our economy. So you can't think about what to do for business if you can't feed yourself and take care of yourself with water first. You need water for everything, right? Straightforward. We, that's old hat. Now, democratizing water, finding new technologies and sources of water, that changes that. Make them affordable, right? Make them, make them cheap so, that every, so you can build it out of anything, you know, really easy. Now, when it comes to diversification, how does diversification of water supply, water technologies enable that? What it does is it allows people to adapt to conditions rather than forcing the world in a Procrustean way, force fitting things, you know, trying to force fit an engineering solution to a really dynamic and wonderfully complex world. You just kind of adapt the technology You just say, well, I'm using say I'm using atmospheric water generation on an industrial scale, how can we do that on an individual scale? Like how can we take desalination using reverse osmosis membranes and multi-walled carbon nanotubes perhaps in the future? How do we, how do we take that and scale it down? How do we miniaturize it the way that, you know, Steve Jobs and Apple took a iPad and turned it into the iPhone? Remember, you want to put technology in the hands of people to drive technology adoption. It's got to be easy. We hit what diversification, we did democratization, now decentralization. The outcome of this, pardon me a moment, the outcome of this is decentralization of power related to water. Think about water utilities, water authorities. Right now, everybody needs them. Everyone needs them. And they're stable. People get into those career fields because it's stable work. Everyone needs water. The problem is that it's extremely expensive and difficult to maintain this one-off infrastructure. Our infrastructure is not modular. You can't just pop out a block and put in a new block and replace the infrastructure with it. So when people built in the past, think about how, you know, firearms weren't standardized until I think the early 19th century, you know, standardization allowed for mass manufacturing. How do we, how do we mass manufacture civilization? Well, it's not through building, you know, cities that are one-offs that are not modularly constructed, that are kind of organic. It's you're figuring out how to build cities in chunks that are distinct, distinct modules like cells in a body. Now, that's what water decentralization means. It means that you don't have to have one big plant with a spider web of, of pipes coming out of it that cost a lot of money that you might not even have recorded because they're 120, 200 years old. This means you can just drop something in a neighborhood and say, here, here's your water source. Have at it, have fun. And that changes everything. So once again, recapping, overall, Water presents a tremendous potential to 
expand the economy, to grow a more complex economy. Why is that? It's because through diversification of water supply and technologies, including recycling technologies and reuse technologies, a decentralization of water systems and authority, you make it more democratic, which means that people have more options to choose their life for themselves. And that's a rough summary of those initial four concepts. There's so much to unpack there. I, I, I want to kind of go back and I love what you said, right? Freedom is you can't, you can say yes if you can't say, you can't say yes if you can't say no, right? If you don't have- You can't say yes if you can't say no. And so it, it just, it makes so much more sense, especially when you look at water as compared to telecom, right? Or potentially like electricity. We've had this conversation on the podcast a few times around how other markets have looked at decentralization, diversification, and, you know, using that technology as an economic medium, right? You kind of brought up this, this Apple example of we've opened up an entire world of web developers and app developers that now make millions, tens of millions of dollars off of the app store, right? Which didn't exist Mm -hmm. 15 years ago. And so I think there is like a lot of just thematic parallels between what we see in the world today and what we could potentially do with water. There was one interesting point you made around water as an economic medium, around it being a primordial soup and almost this cutting the cord analogy. And I really like that of of how do you cut the cord on things that we're dependent on so we can go ahead and then decentralize, democratize that particular asset that we need, this being water that we're talking about, to build an entirely new and more complex economy that is second or third derivative, more complex than what we're living in today. You had mentioned that from the the kind of algae side of cutting the cord on the on the kind of fuel and oil and gas industry. Is there other examples that you can give from a from a water water as an economic medium standpoint where we can cut the cord? Like what how else can we kind of explore that that territory? Sure. Let's let's go right into let's dive right in. Let's dive into the the wonderful world of carbon and carbon things, carbon sequestration, carbon fixing, carbon anything. Okay, so we talked about just cutting the cord, algae, biomaterials. It's one example. Now, what most people don't really know this; they're not aware of this. What what part of the planet really fixes the most carbon? What part captures it and stores it? It's the, it's the ocean, oceans and lakes. Yeah, it's so. All this insanity about carbon capture and storage plants, it's like, no, that's super wasteful. In an energy-stressed world, it's going to cause even more stress. You know, it's like the drunk drinking even more to cover up the pain of last night's hangover, right? It doesn't work. So stop doing it, right? Don't be insane. Be smart. Now, let's focus on this. So how do we go from zero to a million miles an hour? How do we go from zero to the speed of light when it comes to carbon capture and sequestration and long-term deposition? Well, you try it in lakes first. You, because plankton are these really tiny microscopic plants and the animals eat them. That's the beginning right there. And there's this problem right now, which is there's a bio layer that's been disrupted on the surface of lakes and oceans. And it's because of all these surfactants and like, you know, detergents, soaps, and all sorts of crap in the water. And it floats on the surface, right? So it ruins it. So without that layer, you know, this layer of lipids, organic living molecules, things like that. We can't get there. So we're going to start with some places that we can control first. A good example would be lakes. You test the, you test a solution in lakes, 
figure out what your biogeochemical exchange, right? I have a background in biogeochemistry too. You figure out what your exchange rates are and you figure out how much you can do. And then you treat it like an engineering process. You know, you're engineering for ecological productivity. Ecological engineers know this theoretically already. They're just not given the resources to really like go for it and do it on a big scale. So then from there, figuring out how much is being sequestered, kept and sequestered, you got to figure out the structure of, you know, the food web, all those interconnections in the network of matter energy transfer from sunlight to the bottom of the ocean or the bottom of the lake, there's got to be connections there. There's not a connection there. If there's an animal missing, if there's a plant missing, if something's missing, you got to fill in the gap. Mm -hmm. So this is where we get really, really weird and far out. So this is where we start talking about water and cybernetic ecology. We're not talking about cybernetic ecology from an information systems perspective. We're talking about, think of, you know, the cyborgs. One of our ecosystems themselves could be kind of like cyborgs in the you know, in the sense of, you know, meet media, not in the sense of, you know, systems theorists. Not like Norbert Wiener would say. Now you got to fill those gaps in. So think of it as like assistive ecology. You know how you have a prosthetic, you lose a hand, you put it, you get something that works that kind of does the job. Sure. Maybe eventually we'll replace it with a new hand. Well, you do that for ecosystems too. So all these drones and robots and stuff like that, that that's useful. We can build that technology gap out right there. What we can also do is create tons of jobs. People can actually farm living systems to sequester carbon and also get biomaterials out too at the same time, multiple benefits. Finally, you got to figure out how to store it on the bottom. So all these dams that are keeping sediment, sand, dust from getting into lakes or oceans, get rid of them because you need the sediment there to bury the stuff so that it mm. gets into anaerobic conditions and then gets long-term moved underground and transformed and stored. Eventually it'll turn into something you got oil, coal, whatever. Now that's how you do it. The rough chain is in three parts. Make sure that the surface works. If the surface works, the little creatures can capture it. Then figure out what the connections are. Make sure they're there. You know, employ all those unemployed ecologists with PhDs. And then figure out how to keep it on the bottom. Take down the dams. Let the sediment come in. Let it do its job. It's it, it make, Just copy nature. Do it a little bit better. That's what we do anyway. Now, from there, if we're talking about this as a technology scaling problem, you know, say we start in Lake Erie. Because why, why Lake Erie and the Great Lakes? Because it's the warmest and shallowest and most polluted of the Great Lakes. Plenty of nutrients. It's a perfect soup for growing stuff that captures carbon. Try it there. See if it works. You can, the lakes are already somewhat controlled in North America through the IJC, the International Joint Commission. Mm -hmm. and then start working on estuaries and bays in the ocean. So we talked about carbon. So water is the medium for carbon capture, sequestration, and storage. Stop the insanity otherwise. Now, what's another part? Let me think about this for one moment. Food, not just fish, not just seaweed, food. Think about where the Earth's population centers are. They're these coastal cities. So why are we growing all of our food, you know, hundreds to thousands of miles, kilometers away inland somewhere on soils that are getting rapidly degraded? Like all these really rich, low soils from the last ice age, you know, all of a sudden beating off the ice sheets. It's not working. We're destroying the soil. You ever seen those pictures of cornfields in Iowa where there's the house that's like, you know, eight meters above the current working surface of the yeah, land? Yeah. Doesn't, doesn't, doesn't work. Gr grow food in the water near where you live. It's easier. You can, and it creates lots of jobs because it's handwork. It's intensive. There's a lot of maintenance. No one loses jobs. Everyone, in fact, there's more jobs in a water economy because the oceans are 70% of the Earth's surface, right? So that's it. So. 
wrapping, I get more stuff to, we can talk about that later, wrapping back around. Let's look at it again. What we have right now is we have, you know, biomaterials, algae, plants, things like that. We have as feedstocks for our various industries. We also have, you know, carbon capture using lakes, streams, rivers, wetlands, and oceans. And the final part was food, mm -hmm. grow food in the ocean. Awesome. That's, that's such a interesting thing to look at. I mean, honestly, I'm, my background's in mechanical engineering, right? And I love, I love the way that you explain it from a, a systems diagram standpoint. And this concept of, of cybernetic ecology, right? Where you just said you have this prosthetic arm. If you break one off, there is a chain of functions that need to be achieved off of, you know, the, the, the actual food chain and, and, and the ecological dependencies that are there. And if there's a part that's missing, I think we probably have the technology from a systems diagram standpoint and the technology to actually implement something to stand right. that ecosystem back up and then go ahead and kind of move forward from there. Mm -hmm. That makes a complete amount of sense. You had mentioned ecosystems. that ecological engineering, ecological engineers kind of have a lot of these solutions in their mind, but they're not really given either the, the, the capital or the resources to kind of do that. If the knowledge is out there, right, that kind of raises a question in my mind of what will get us over the hurdle so we can actually start implementing parts and parcel of this. I mean, you'd mentioned, you know, a great MVP is launching in a lake, but like what's really stopping that kind of key from going in the ignition? It's uncertain. And I've worked with lots of engineers. I've run engineering teams to develop products. Engineers want reliability, right? So there's an inherent, there's an inherent sort of Remember, your license depends upon, if you're a PE, a professional engineer, your license depends upon you getting it done that it works. You say, I can do this and I know it's going to give this result. <laughs> you're, you're, if your business is reliability and you're stepping into new territory, there's no such thing. It's all, it's all risk. It's all insanity and it's all crazy. Like you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Yeah. You, you don't, you can't, you can't think your way ahead far enough. Remember, we can only see this far in front of our face. We can't analytically solve everything ahead of time. We don't have a systems diagram for the place beyond the horizon. So there's sort of a inherent anxiety and un uncertainty towards the opportunity presented by the edge. You know, what do the old Greeks say? You know, paraphrasing immediate the eschaton, you know, make the edge near mm -hmm. so you can look across it. So we got to get over that. Get used to edge thinking. You know, get used to looking over the cliff and saying, let's jump. Why not? I might, I might make it. Two, our, e our economy right now is not set up to take chances. Business runs on reliability. What do you think people use all the data that they scrape from all the apps for? Figuring out user personas and just pumping more juice into someone's veins. Be like, here you go. You want more of that, right? It's all about reliability. It's all about rel reliable flows of capital, especially, especially, sorry, revenue, especially in tense times when people have less money. So it's getting tighter. Our economy is at the end phase of its development. It can't grow anymore in its current system. So it's, tr it's trying to say, we'll do it this way. And it's trying to force fit. So one of the big problems is this linear economy that requires things to be predictable all the time. It's because it deals with scarcity and material production. And if that's your goal, you're not going to be thinking about things like, well, how do I get a different source of this, you know, bio, biomaterial. You're not thinking about that. You're thinking about how I can minimize the cost of my current feedstock by say opening a new mine. Sure. So lack of creativity economically, you know, lack of creative economy. What's the third thing I could say? Social disconnection. People don't have salons anymore. 
They don't just hang out and try stuff and think freely. There's, you know, how many times have I been in a conversation with somebody who's some sort of expert in something or other? And they're like, no, that's not going to work. Like, why? Like, because of this. And I said, have we done any sort of empirical investigation? Have we taken a look at it? No, we haven't. People forget that there's this thing called the narrative fallacy. You know, it's from, it's most popularly presented in Black Swan. And the idea is people forget that their theoretical narrative is not reality. Their platonic narrative is not reality. That form is not nature itself. So when you're working with nature itself, you've got to be on the edge taking chances because things are going to break, right? When Elon Musk blows up a rocket, is that a failure? No. He succeeded in learning. So an attitude that looks forward towards taking chances and learning, a true pioneering attitude is what's needed. What's holding us back is a fear of change. Mm -hmm. I want to retain my wealth and power. I don't want to change because I enjoy my comforts. You know, it's red, red pill, blue pill thinking. I advocate taking all the pills, take blue pills, red pills, green pills, who cares and see what happens. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Is there, you've kind of, you know, we were talking about earlier how you go to the, to, to these UN, you know, these, these sessions that are not directly in the main trunk of the, of the water conference. If you had a magic wand and kind of all the, all the playing cards in front of you with the governments that be right. You kind of mentioned that this, that, 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 that the system that currently exists today is, is what it is. And that's also in a sense holding us back because we've kind of developed where we are to today to its almost maximum capacity. What are things that we can do, you know, and even kind of almost a shout out to the listeners of, is there anything that you would advocate for, right? Do you have any suggestions, even like a one or two, like do these two things first, because I think that put these people in office, you know, whatever, whatever it might be, we need to go ahead and just change government in this, this particular way. Any thoughts on kind of what could be solutions on how we even kick this off? Yeah. Don't start with government. It's too big. It's too centralized. So to maximize creativity, you need a lot of individual parts and small groups doing a lot of stuff. Yeah. Like look at how DARPA does things. Like throw a little bit of money at a lot of things and see what sticks, right? And put a lot of weird, smart people together and say, go have fun, see what happens. So to two things I would say, one, put your phone down, turn off all your stuff, maybe put some music on, maybe play your own music. And hang out with people in garages and tinkers, screw around, have fun, drink beer, whatever. And take your time and replace entertainment, which is unfulfilling, with tinkering, which is fun. And you might come across something interesting. When I say tinkering, I don't just mean physical, that I mean playing games with your mind, free thinking, engage in free thinking and the free interplay of concepts and ideas, you know, no holds barred thinking, speaking, acting, true freedom of speech. You know, a place where nobody gets canceled because we're living in times where we got to play games to think about where we're going to go tomorrow because we don't know what's going to happen. Things are changing. So spend time with people doing stuff for real, including building technologies and identifying new solutions to problems that we have these days that you could do yourself. Two, beyond that, I guess this one is for government. Two is for government. Throw lots of little chunks of money at a lot of people who have decent ideas. Don't expect them to be perfect. Mm -hmm. Don't expect them to always follow your, you know, grant application format. Just say, Hey, if I gave you 50 grand and you put in 30 hours a week and you can prove it for one year, 50, $50,000 US, I should say, what can you do? 
you know, all I want to see from you is effort because we can guarantee efforts. We cannot guarantee results. I'm not looking for a specific product at the end of it. Failure is always an option. Just do something. Spend a year doing something. So imagine if everybody on Earth had a year or two of sabbatical where they could just think of stuff and not worry about everyday life. What would that do for us? So once again, the two things are spend time with people doing things, having fun solving problems together. Two, throw lots of little bits of money at a lot of people and just ask them to show up 30 hours a week and do it. That way they can work on the jobs too. And don't expect them to deliver some crazy product that's going to scale infinitely. We don't want that. That's not what the economy needs. It needs more little stuff, not these huge gaps, yeah. right? I, I, I love that so much. I like to explore a little bit about kind of why guests on this podcast arrived at where they're at. And your your thinking is just so interesting. What's your what's your story, Michael? Where 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 did you come up with these ideas? Like what's your background? I know you have you've been in academia, you have a PhD. Walk us through this the, the story of you. So how did I get into this universal else here now and me being me? Well, everything that anyone ever told me to do when it came to what I should do with my life, I said, no, I'm just going to do the opposite because going back to principle one, you can't say yes, you can't say no, right? Sure. So if you're going to, if you're going to tell me, if you're going to tell me that I can't do something, now watch me do it mm. because I'm, because I'm going to prove through re, re, real results that I could do it. So cross the line always see where it goes. And where does that come from? So I'll start with where I came from. You know, I grew up poor in the ghetto. Like I grew up in probably one of the worst ghettos in the country in Buffalo, New York. You know, I grew up in a part of Buffalo that's like sort of the upper east side of Buffalo. Buffalo's a pretty large city. It's just no one knows it. And it was in a place called Central Park. And if you want to talk about watching watching a system fail people, I mean, like living through neighborhoods falling apart, living like living through just decades of intense human suffering i can tell you from experience what it's like and it's awful you feel terrible every day you're, you're worried about your safety and your survival you don't have money or food your house is leaking water when it rains things like that so suffering makes you strong and without suffering and the will to, per- to proceed through it unabated you know that persistence you're not going to get anywhere it's amazing like, people talk about this stuff all the time they talk about grit well, how do you get grit? You, well, you just, you, you do the hardest possible thing you can think of and you just do it every day. You punch, you punch the board. Like there's no guarantee you're ever going to break through. That's where it came from at heart. You know, I came from a place where there are things I've seen and I've been through that like you wouldn't believe. And I can tell you from firsthand experience. And so I decided that I didn't want that anymore because remember there is a way out of suffering and the way out of suffering is not necessarily just acceptance of your current condition. There's another way, and that way is action. That way is willful action towards creation. So then I got, then I read a bunch of books as a kid. You know, I, I, of course it was like you know I read Dune, all, I read all the Dune books by Frank Herbert. I read a lot of National Geographic. You know, luckily I had grandparents who knew how to live. You know, and I spent a lot of time in like weirdly enough, like Catholic churches and, and just experiencing the beauty of those traditional spaces. And that kind of got me into this whole world of, well, you know, let's see what I can do. And what I decided that I wanted to do is I decided that I wanted to build and rebuild cities and I wanted to terraform planets and I wanted to create ecosystems 
because that sounds like fun. And everyone said, well, you're never going to get a job doing that. I said, I don't want to get a job. I want to create jobs and I want to invent my own jobs because it's more interesting than doing what you're told all the time, because that doesn't work for me. So that got me through many years of sort of undergraduate and academic world, graduate PhD research. And I got into this weird sort of interdisciplinary ecosystem restoration program at the university at Buffalo, you know, and cause I decided that I wanted to stay here. Why should I not be able to make that choice? Right. Why should I have to travel everywhere all the time? I wanted to contribute to my community because I saw that there was suffering there and problems there. And so I, I went through the whole PhD thing. It took me a long time. I worked full time with kids, two jobs and a PhD and then I got divorced and it was, you know, additional, additional madness on top of suffering. You just got to keep going through it. You can never quit, right? Because if you don't, if you quit, you're never going to get there. You got no shot whatsoever. You must keep focused on the point on the horizon. I also race, I also race yachts too. So I've almost died a bunch of times. Let me tell you all about that. So it changes your perspective on the world, right? And, and when I finished my PhD, I realized that I wanted business as a vehicle for creative action in the world. And when I talk about business, I talk about serving needs. People forget that purpose of business as sort of a social machine is to transfer information around, share information, and to convert energy to matter and matter to energy and back and forth. It's a transformative system. And I think I was thinking about ways to treat ecosystems as infrastructure to help people live in better cities and get smarter. So that's where I am right now. I mean, I did start my own company with my business partner, Dr. Tandon Melillo. That's kind of a, it'll be emerging in the future. We're not we're not ready to reveal that yet, but we do interesting work. But my idea fundamentally is I started out seeing a lot of problems and I decided to do something about them because it felt better than just accepting them. And, and then I spent 25 years doing all this academic work and other work. And on the side of that, I was doing all sorts of other weird stuff too, like Taoist yogas and, you know, things like Raja yoga processes, not your traditional yogas. And. I'm at a point now with you saying that we have a chance to build an economy that is more complex and powerful than our current economy based around water. And that involves places like Buffalo, New York, because Buffalo is one of the few cities in the world that was custom built to be sort of a replicable city and scalable. Mm. And I can tell you that on another, another podcast in the future, because I also do that kind of thing. So there you go. That's where it came from. I do things because I want people to be happy and healthy to make a better world. Awesome. That's it makes so much sense. When right. we were talking earlier, you had mentioned that you also wanted to make environmental science more accessible for people. So yeah, go ahead. go ahead. Well, the biggest problem now is that people, regular people don't realize that they can, they can do science. You can do engineering, whatever. It's not like this thing that is a secret behind closed doors, but that's kind of what it's turned into where people don't, pardon me, my dogs are barking. People don't, realize that they have this power and it comes down to very simple things. You know, what it comes down to is it comes down to taking the time to see the world around you for real. And what does that mean? So when I say environmental science, I mean, being in the world around you, whatever your environment is, I'm sitting in my study right now, which is my office, my studies upstairs and seeing the world around you and then not being attached to one idea of what you see, like looking at different patterns in the world. So teaching people that kind of cognitive flexibility, you know, we can, we can say that it's an offshoot of cognitive diversity. And when it comes to the environmental science side specifically, what I'm working on 
is helping people to understand how to take that basic observation in their daily life and gain some insight into their condition. For example, people wonder why they feel the way they do often. They're like, you know, why do I feel tired today? Well, it's probably connected to maybe it's raining. Maybe there is some smoke in the air from fires. Without the environmental awareness, people can't connect how they feel with what's going on in the world around them. And that connection is fundamentally always there. It never, ever, ever went away. And by expanding and by expanding the population that has access to environmental science on a ground level, we can start solving those problems for ourselves and improve public health on an individual basis. You don't have to like spend months waiting for a doctor. You can say, oh, I feel sick today because I smell, you know, this, this sewer gas. Pardon me a second. I have a blue tick coon hound. His name is Foster, and he just barks at everything. <laughs> and yeah, I got two hounds, you know, challenging dogs. Anyway, so the point is, Expanding, expanding access to environmental science allows people to know more about the world and solve their problems on the spot. They don't have to wait. On a, on a business level, what does it mean? Well, right now, it's really expensive to get anything done through universities. It's, consultancies are super expensive, too. How do you make it faster, better, cheaper? So that if you're, like, say, a real estate agent and you want detailed information on a group of properties that you're looking at buying, you want to know you're not going to be stuck with stranded assets. You, don't, you want to be able to sell your portfolio. If you're a bank trying to loan money, you want to know that there's going to be a return on there because you don't want to realize, oh, 10 years down the road, there's no water. There's no water. There's no, you know, land's dust. You don't want, you don't want to live in Mad Max world. You don't want to, you don't want to live in Blade Runner because you want to make money, right? So that's it. That's the whole point of expanding access to environmental science. And when I say environmental science, I mean total environmental science, not just limited studies, publish a paper and it's on a shelf. I mean, dynamic. So it's a service too. You know, you might have an initial product, which is an assessment or analysis. And the services, we help you be aware of what's going on in your world. This applies to say the government too, like the public sector. If you, if you're a city and you don't have the experts, well, we want to be able to be there for you to fill in that gap so that you can become aware of how you can adapt to change. This is a global market because change is coming. It's already here and you're going to need people to help you with it. There you go. Which, which really ties back to your kind of initial point you made about, you know, putting your, putting your phone away, sitting down and really just tinkering in, in, in garages or with, with groups of people, because you're right in the point that you made earlier is we don't have these, these third spaces anymore, right? We, we, we have the work, the home and the office. And we used to spend a lot of time at these, these salons, the, the cafe, whatever, whatever the name is and whatever culture you come from. Um, but these third spaces used to exist and people used to have a lot of information transfer then, right? They used to have a lot of communication, a lot of collaboration and totally makes sense that we do need to, we do need to bring it back a little bit from the world we've been living in the last few years to kind of getting back out to those salons and those third spaces, hundred percent. And it's, and there's, and it's not predictable and it's not safe either. So here's a fun fact about me too. I've been, I've been in the hospitality business, you know, restaurants, bars, everything for 26 years now. Mm -hmm. And chaos is creative. You know, when, when we start, when we start putting safety above risk and in those spaces and those third spaces, they're, they're wild. They're ungovernable. They, no one cares what the rules are other than don't burn the place down. Yeah. Right? And that's where that cutting edge creativity comes from. Now imagine a group like that equipped with the tools to do real-time environmental science on a little pond, it becomes almost like a hobby. It's like, imagine all the tech nerds in the world 
saying, let's, let's figure out how to take all of our stuff and put, put it together for a purpose. And then we'll see things like self-assembly. Because remember, the more, the more chances for these random occurrences to take place, the more chaos we can create, the more chance that something is going to stick, right? You know, exposure to positive black swans. Yep. You want, you know, and chaos has value. And that's kind of what Silicon Valley was like back in the day when it was cheap and you had some jobs at like, what was it? Dell and Hewitt, Hewlett Packard and some Stanford people probably smoking weed, hanging out in garages, sure. you know, that's where it came from. And a lot of like vast spaces, like cow country, I spent, I spent time in farms too. Those vast spaces that you don't get when you're staring at your phone, when you're sitting in just rooms all the day, mm-hmm. those vast spaces change how you think. So do it together outdoors. Love it. I ask everybody a final question before we, before we close out the show. And you, you kind of alluded to this, that you do, that you did read a lot. I ask everybody, is there a book or a show or a movie that has, you know, maybe had like a profound impact on the way that you look at the world or the way that, you know, kind of has moved in your interest towards water? There's... I'm not going to say what I want to say because it would be a little bit too weird for most people, but let's just say, I'm not going to tell you, I'm not going to tell you what book has probably had the most influence on me, but let's just say that it worked like magic, but I can give you something that's more palatable. And let me look, I'm looking at my bookshelf right now. Give me a second. Give me just a moment. I'm going to get up for a second and actually see if I could find the book. Okay. So this one has lost the dust jacket. I think it got destroyed a while ago. But you can see it's maybe energy and form okay. by Knowles. And this is, it's, you know, it's from MIT Press. And this was, a, oh, here's the dust jacket. So remember, you know, think about, let's think of it like this. There's a concept in esoteric bruising known as like Vajrayana bruising called knowledge of the ground, you know? So when you understand the root of reality, you understand that form and function go together. It's like, you know, Tesla, how, how do you think Tesla figured out three-phase power? He's like, well, how do you stabilize the flow of power? Well, linearity will create, will cause pressure and backup. So you have loss, like linearity and sort of like, you know, the transmission of energy, you know, it's like it creates sort of a bleed. But when you spirally, just like rifling a bullet, it'll actually self-stabilize over time. So what, it, so how did I get into this stuff here? Here's the cover. Got a pretty cool sort of early geospatial Mandelbrotian thing. Oh, that's there cool. it is right there. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I, I love these, like, you know, 60, 70 style books. So an ecological approach to urban growth. Well, this book really kind of, you know, followed up on a pattern language. And why does it matter to me? It's because when you start designing at the level of basic forms and geometrically, then you can begin to understand how things will flow through systems. So say we're designing an ecological network in a, one of the Great Lakes or an ocean. Lay out the form first, and then allow the dynamic components to like show their stuff over time. Put stuff in place and see how it moves together. And it's like it's like playing sports. It's like you know working at a restaurant. It's like working on a systems design problem. Get there first, and that's why this book is so important to me right now. There's a bunch of other ones too, like I said, but this is the one that's currently the one that has really changed my mind. Awesome. Yeah, we'll definitely throw that under your under your show notes. I think our readers. And and our listeners actually love picking up the books that that everybody that we interview has. And there's always a interesting answer that we get. Well, that's uh, all we have time today for. Uh, thanks mm-hmm. again for coming on the pod. Mike. 
Yeah, sure thing. There's a, you know, it's, I, I love, I love, I love talking about what's possible and how to get there because you got to be more than an idea guy. You got to be able to go from the idea to the reality and do all parts of the process. And getting back to the idea of, you know, decentralization, you know, with centralization, there's over-specialization. So de-specializing, becoming expert generalist is the key, you know, broad and deep. Well, thanks for having me, Robbie. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I think we'll need to do um, another follow-up because there's so many other directions we can go on. But uh, where do you want to go? Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> where do you, where do you want to go? Awesome. And so for all of you out there listening, um, you can find us wherever you listen to your podcast, be that on Spotify, Apple, or Google, and you can follow us at liquidassets.cc. Again, my name is Robbie Crony, and thanks again for coming on the show, Michael. Yeah. And this is Dr. Michael Stanley Gellis for signing off saying thank you once again, Robbie. And I, let's follow up. Let's say December. Yeah. You know, for the holidays. Be good. Perfect. All right. Cool. Take care.